passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, church. Um, It's so good to be with you here this morning. I hope you had a uh, good time to uh, pause and, and reflect on all the things that you have to be thankful for, uh, not just uh, the earthly uh, blessings that you've received, but also the spiritual blessings that God has bestowed upon you in Christ uh, over these past few days. And this morning, we're going to continue working through the book of Colossians. Uh, we are in Colossians chapter 3, uh, kind of we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting in verse 5. Last week, we looked at a key passage here in the book of Colossians uh, because it serves as kind of a transition in the book of Colossians. In the first couple chapters of Paul's letter here to this church, Paul is primarily focusing on exposition, or he's focusing on uh, over and over again how great, how glorious, how magnificent Jesus is in the face of every single competing claim that the world can offer to us. And the last couple chapters, last two chapters of Colossians, take this exposition and they make a transition from the greatness of Jesus and, and just talking about that to how we are to live. Or in other words, a, a transition, as we said last week, from exposition to exhortation, how we are to live in light of the greatness of who God is. And so chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Colossians are intensely practical. And last week we began looking at these last two chapters, seeing that our motivation for any sort of growth, any sort of improvement in our lives, any sort of fruit in our lives is first and foremost found in our union with Christ. Last week we looked at this charge to set our minds or to dwell upon the things of Christ how this should permeate all of our lives, that we should see Christ as a lens that we look at all of life through. And that right there is the key to spiritual growth. That's the key to closeness to God. And so as we left last week, we talked about ways that we as a church, we as individuals can continually set our minds on the things of Christ to have our minds dwell, to take up residence on Christ And I hope you had a chance this past week, if you were here with us last week, to really just recalibrate the way that you look at all that you have to be thankful for, all of day-to-day life, to look at it through this lens of who Christ is. Now, one thing that we didn't talk about last week is uh, something that we could have talked about is this disconnect that I'm sure all of us feel when it comes to our union with Christ. If I were to ask the question, how many of you see your life's actions, your heart's desires, how many of you see those things fully aligned with your union with Christ? In other words, how many of you live the perfect, fully obedient life uh, of following Christ in every single moment? And I would guess that all of us would say no, and if you didn't say no, then you would be lying. There is a a distinct disconnect between our identity as those who have been united with Christ and his death and his resurrection with the reality of our lives. 
a reality that shows that we have a long way to go on a path to holiness. And this morning's passage addresses that disconnect. It addresses the, the distance between our, uh, the, the true reality as a Christian that we are united with Christ with the other reality that we oftentimes don't live out our union with Christ. And so in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, our passage this morning, Paul addresses the church in Colossae and tells them to put in the hard work of putting to death their sinful ways. But the reality is, Paul doesn't just give them a list of do's and don'ts. He doesn't just say, do this, do this, do this, buck up and try to do this, don't do that, don't do that. Instead of just giving commands, he roots those commands, like always, as we always look at the Bible, the commands of God are always rooted in our current status and our current identity in Christ. The same is true for us this morning. Just like the church in Colossae thousands of years ago, we live in the in-between, the already, not yet. We are those who are united with Christ, who has ascended into the heavens and sits at the right hand of God. We are assured new life, glorification, exaltation, holiness through Christ's victory on the cross. And yet at the exact same time that all of those things are ours, the exact same time that we are united with Christ at the right hand of God, we experience anger, resentment, struggles with lust, selfishness, greed, and on and on and on. It's in this tension of, of who we are and who we are becoming that Paul gives us one simple charge, and this is the, the focus of these verses this morning. It's almost as if Paul is just simply saying, put to death the old to make room for the new. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And from that place, put to death the old to make room for the new, for more of who you really are now in Christ, because you are united with him. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Uh, it's going to be where we're spending our time this morning. It's a, it's a very extremely practical, uh, simple passage. It gives us two lists of vices, things that we are to not do, to put to death. But it's followed by the incredibly good news that motivates us to holy living. And that is our union with Christ. We've talked about our union with Christ every single week as we've been in this book, uh, and that, that's not something that's just a coincidence. Paul hammers home over and over again that the key to our growth as Christians is to remain united with Christ. And so with that in mind, let's pray as we read God's Word. Please pray with me. God, it is so good, again, to gather uh, around your Word with fellow believers to study your word, to fix our gaze upon your son, to turn our hearts, our minds, our attention to him. And so God, we ask now that as we go through this passage that you would be present, that you would teach us. It is our earnest prayer and hope that we would not 
come away from this passage with more things to do in order to earn your favor, but instead that we would look upon these charges as part of who you are calling us to be as your children. Bless now the reading of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud starting in verse 5 of Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Here in these first few verses of Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, Paul gives us our first command this morning. Now, first command is this, that we are to put to death the desires of your old heart. It's a command that Christians are to live out, to put to death the desires of our old hearts. Paul lists a a number of vices in this passage and says that we are to put them all to death. In one way or another, each of these different things that Paul mentions are connected to the desires of the old heart. Now, before we get into that connection, the thing that ties all of these together, let's just look at the details of what Paul is saying here. Paul doesn't pull any punches in this passage, does he? When he's talking about how we are to deal with sin, Paul doesn't pull any punches. He understands that sin is not something that is trivial. It's not something that you can mess around with, to fool around with, to be trifled with. This past week, a friend sent me a video of a man uh, sneaking up on a tiger with the intention of trying to scare that tiger. Now, as as I watched this uh, 10-second video, very short, two things came to mind. Uh, First thing is, man, this guy is stupid. And the second thing is, uh, well, no, it was just the same thing. This guy is really stupid. It's never a good idea to sneak up on a fully grown 400-pound male tiger with razor-sharp teeth and claws and try to scare it. And yet, sometimes that's exactly the way we are with sin. Indeed, it's the same thing for sin in our lives. It is the height of foolishness for us to continue living with a deadly animal in the house or to continue playing with a deadly animal in the house. It's not enough for us to give the appearance of trying to deal with these things so that way we fool everyone else in our lives. It's not enough to limit the sin in our lives, the times and places where we are alone. We may be able to sneak up on the tiger this time and get away unscathed. But it's only a matter of time before the tiger will lash out. Paul tells us to put to death the sinful nature. This is a theological term called mortification, which you see in the title of your sermon this morning. It is to put to death those things of the old self. Part of growing in Christ is the holy and yet very, very painful calling to kill sin. To kill the sin that is within you. Next week, we'll look at the the subsequent passage, and it's called, uh, theologically, it's called vivification, or to bring to new life the, the things of God. But first, Paul says, before you can do that, you have to put to death the things of the old self. And so Paul lists a number of different things here in this passage that we are to kill. 
First, Paul mentions sexual immorality. Greco-Roman culture that Paul was writing to was filled with sex. Virtually nothing was off limits in those days and age. And so for many people who had become Christians out of this background, it was a bit of a learning curve for them to understand that God's purpose for sex was meant to be coupled with a covenantal relationship in marriage. For those people, the first thing that they had to come to grips with in their faith was realizing that the freedom that they thought they had in sexual liberation was not freedom at all. It was actually slavery. You see, if God is who he says he is, and if God is the creator of everyone and of everything, then even though it may not seem to make sense to us at times, then this God is worth trusting. And so Paul calls the church in Colossae to start their holy genocide with any form of sexual expression outside of the covenant of marriage. Next thing Paul mentions is impurity. Now this word doesn't have to refer to sex like the first one, but it seems that here in the context of Colossians 3, this is exactly what Paul has in mind. We see here that the the charge of following God is intensified. Not only is it sexual misconduct that must be put to death, but also the thoughts that are associated with it. These two things are inseparably linked in following God, and they're inseparably linked in our culture as well, although maybe not in the exact same way. It seems like we live and move and have our being. Words from Acts 17. Not in God according to our culture, but instead in sexual immorality or impurity. You would be hard-pressed to find a a sitcom that doesn't have a plot revolving around sexual misconduct or impurity, or that doesn't have an offhanded comment making light of God's good plan for sex. You would be hard-pressed to find a movie that doesn't end up with two uh, of the characters shacking up together. These words are crucial for our culture, and they're crucial for us living in our culture. These past few weeks, we have seen revelation after revelation coming from Hollywood of sexual assault claims, many of them leveled against some of the biggest names in the business. In Alabama, we have a prospective senator accused uh, by multiple women of assaulting him. We have a senator in Minnesota who is caught in a picture groping a woman who is asleep. We have a representative from the state of Ohio forced to resign after a homosexual affair, and the list could go on and on and on. And it doesn't just get limited to Hollywood and to Washington. Impurity surrounds us. It makes no distinction between whether you are rich or not, or famous or not, or liberal or conservative. Can you think of a better context than ours for Paul's words to put to death sexual immorality, to put to death impurity, put it to death, let it have no place among you. Do whatever you have to to get rid of it. Cut it out of your lives. Have nothing to do with it. Paul continues. He mentions passion. 
This is the same word Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 to refer to the state of humanity before Christ, a a humanity that is sinful, a a heart of, of sinful men and women. It says this in Romans 1 verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he continues on to describe homosexual relationships. But I think it would be wrong for us to narrow this word to just that meaning. It is these passions that drive Hollywood producers to assault those who are less powerful than them. And it is those same passions that are found in each and every person who is a part from Christ. It may not be expressed in the exact same way. It might not be expressed as overtly. But it is a passion of the heart that is separated from Christ. And because we are united with Christ, it must be put to death. Fourth, Paul mentions evil desire. Elsewhere, this word has been translated as lust. It carries a similar meaning to what we have uh, mentioned at this point. And then Paul transitions from these words that, that seem to focus on sexual sin to something that is completely different. It might surprise us how Paul ends here in verse 5. Instead of focusing on another reference to sexual sin here, Paul instead mentions that we should put to to death covetousness, which he says is idolatry. Again, this is a desire of the heart. It is a desire for not just something that you don't currently have, it is also a desire to have something that someone else owns, that belongs to someone else. At first glance, it might seem like this is out of, uh, out of place in this list of sexual sin, but its location is highly significant. And the reason it's so significant is because Paul isn't just concerned with sexual ethics, even though that is clearly true here. Paul's focus is much bigger than that. He's, he's focused on the longings and the desires of the old heart. He's concerned with the heart that is separated from Christ. The heart that has its focus on things that are apart from Christ. This is the heart that is described in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the heart that is described in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It is this focus that we see from the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We live in a culture that tells us to follow our heart. And yet Paul's words here tell us that that is one of the worst things that you can do. We're not to follow our hearts. We are to put to death the things of the old heart, of the heart that is separated from Christ, the focus of a heart that is not focused on Christ. Paul says, do whatever you have to, to get rid of those things in your life. 
a heart that does not desire Christ, but it desires other things to find hope and joy and meaning and satisfaction in other things. Put it to death. Put to death all of these things, the desires of the old heart that still so often beats within each and every one of us. And Paul explains why we are called to do this in the next few verses. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Just like the wrath of God came in response to the wickedness of the human heart in the time of the flood, so also it will return again. And so Paul shares this as motivation for putting to death the desires of the old heart within each and every one of us. The reality is, death awaits the old heart one way or another. We can put it to death at the feet of the cross, or God will put it to death in wrath. As those who were once slaves to the sinful nature, but who have been set free in our union with Christ, let us put to death the desires of the old heart. That's Paul's first command here in Colossians 3. The second one is similar, and it's found in verse 8. Verse 8, uh, and the first part of verse 9. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And then Paul continues with the reason, and we'll get to that here in a second. Here in verse 8, in the first half of verse 9, we see uh, our second command is this, to remove the reactions of your old heart. To remove the reactions of your old heart. So first remove the desires, and now remove the way that your heart reacts when it is put under pressure. Many of you are aware that before moving here to Spencer, my wife and I lived in Chicago for a few years, and we encountered, this might surprise you, encountered a, a bit different uh, type of, of driving in Chicago than you might experience here in, uh, in Spencer. We uh, ran into a fair number of road rage uh, of drivers, and I would be lying if our driving styles didn't change as well when we uh, were immersed in that culture for uh, a few years. It took a bit of adjusting uh, for me when I moved here uh, back to Iowa, especially with two-lane roads. I just don't know how, uh, how we do it. I recall once there was this uh, driver uh, who was very, very frustrated with my decision to follow traffic laws and stop at a red light. Uh, we were just about to enter onto the interstate, and he was furious that I had stopped, and he wasn't able to get onto the interstate as well. And so, when he had the chance, uh, and the light was green, he not just tried to get on, not just, you know, pass me once we got on the interstate, he actually decided to drive onto the grassy part of the entrance ramp to pass me as we were getting onto the entrance ramp, or onto the interstate. And as he passed by, I remember just laughing almost uncontrollably because of how ridiculous this person was being. He wasn't amused. In fact, he was shouting things at me that I'm pretty sure wasn't inviting me over for a Thanksgiving meal. And though this move was extremely dangerous, I probably saved him about five seconds because he could have passed me once we got onto the interstate. Could have been, ended up in a serious injury for this person. So why did he do it? Well, at the risk of analyzing all forms of road rage. I think the reason why he responded in this anger and this wrath is because I stood in the way of his heart's desire. Verse 
He desired to be on the interstate before me, and I stood in the way of that. And so he lashed out nearly uncontrollably in anger at what I had done. It's not just road rage. It's the way all of our old hearts respond when they don't get the things that they desire and they want. An English playwright from the 1700s famously wrote, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I think a a more appropriate statement would be, Hell hath no fury like the sinful heart scorned. We respond in great wrath, great anger, when our heart doesn't get what it wants. And so Paul, after looking at all these passions of the old heart, now turns his attention to the reactions of the old heart. He says, you know, it's not enough for you to just put to death the the passions, the desires of the old heart, but now you need to put to death the way it responds when it doesn't get what it wants. And so first Paul says you need to, to remove, to take off anger and wrath. These two things are are joined together. They're synonyms. One author describes it this way. The anger described here is a growing inner anger, like the sap in a tree on a hot day, which swells the trunk and branches until they are in danger of bursting. Wrath or rage is that anger boiling over. Paul tells us that these reactions are a part of the old self, and we are to to rid ourselves of both. Next, Paul mentions malice. This is really a a mean-spirited, vicious attitude toward others. This is a mindset that delights in the woes of others. So for you sports fans, it is not a good idea for you to rejoice in the misery of your opposing teams, unless they are part of the SEC. Here is where covetousness links into our reactions, our responses, when our old heart doesn't get what it wants. We want something that our neighbor has, but we don't. And so we can get angry and we can get bitter. And when we are deprived of those things, we actually get some sort of sick, twisted satisfaction when they are deprived of something as well. Paul says to rid your life of these things, to rid your life of this malice, to rid your life of the rejoicing in other people's misery. Kill it. Set it apart for destruction. Third, Paul mentions slander. This is speech that defames another person It all too often happens in relationship with covetousness and our jealousy and bitterness toward others, which is really just a form of bitterness toward God that he hasn't given to us what he has given to other people. We can find it impossible to compliment another person or even worse, impossible to hear another person being complimented. And instead, we often interject, well, yeah, they're pretty good at what they do for being a greedy alcoholic. We can slander people, whether it's true or not. We slander their character because we can't stand the happiness of others. 
And so Paul tells us to put to death the malice of our own hearts, the slander of our own hearts. And then finally, Paul mentions to put to death obscene talk. Now, it would be appropriate for us to remove all forms of of obscene talk from our lips, but Paul isn't just talking about swearing here, about cursing. He's talking about something deeper. He's talking about how we actually do curse someone, not with just specific words, not like a form of witchcraft or anything like that, but this is a mindset that has an attitude or an aim to do as much possible damage to a person just with our words. Physical wounds can heal, but wounds left by some words can last forever. And so Paul, as he's talking to Christians who are united with Christ, said that these these things have no place in a Christian's life. That we as Christians are to put these things to death. And so then Paul finishes with one final vice that we are to kill in our lives, and that is just lying to one another. Don't lie to one another. If you live in Christian community, don't lie to one another. If it's going to be a place of authenticity and trust and deep communion, there's no place for lying. One pastor describes it this way. A lie is any any misrepresentation of the truth, even if the words are accurate. The tone of the voice, the look on the face, a gesture of the hand, All these things can alter the meaning of a sentence. So can the motive of the heart. If my watch is wrong and I give a friend the wrong time, that's not a lie. Lying involves the intent to deceive for the purpose of personal gain. As an old proverb says, half a fact is a whole lie. Paul has a much bigger focus than just making sure that we tell the truth or give the facts to one another. He, he wants us to, to focus on the intent of our hearts. Do we intend to deceive others? Paul says there is no place for this type of deceit among Christians. We must put to death all of these reactions of the old heart. And so as we read the rest of our passage, we see Paul gives us the reasons why. Let's continue reading, picking up Uh, Again, in verse 9, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Why is it that we are to put to death the passions of the old heart? Why is it that we are to put to death the reactions of the old heart? Paul gives us our answer here. First, we're to put to death the old self because we are a new creation. It's simple, and yet it's profound. Put to death the old self because you are a new creation in Christ. The reason for spiritual growth, the motivation for spiritual growth is found in our union with Christ. And so Paul describes this change in a powerfully familiar image of changing clothes. I have to change quite a bit of clothes because my kids aren't great at eating food. But something else comes to mind, uh, a rather embarrassing story from about a decade ago. 
when I think of changing clothes. About a decade ago, I spent some time camping in the Boundary Waters, and it's about a week. Uh, great time. Loved it. It was great to just be out in nature, but there was just one issue. I didn't do a good job of, of uh, having a pack that was waterproof, and it rained the entire time. It rained virtually the entire week, and it soaked all of my clothes within the first few hours, and they were all wet the rest of the trip. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a few things that are less enjoyable than changing out of wet clothes into wet clothes. And so I just decided to, to just wear the same clothes the entire week. To wear the same clothes the entire week. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I was a, a college student surrounded by other men, so I, I just thought, you know, we're all just going to stink together. But after I returned from the, uh, from the trip, I, I noticed that my clothes, which were ruined, uh, by the way, uh, they, they weren't the primary problem. Because I had been wearing the same pair of wet socks for virtually the entire week, I got in a nasty case of what's called trench foot. Trench foot is caused by prolonged foot exposure to elements uh, that are damp, unsanitary, and cold. And then it leads to discolored skin at first from blood loss. If it's not caught and, and addressed right away, the skin tissue begins to die and, and it leads to this awful smell that's far worse than just your bad smelling feet. And if things continue to progress, your feet will swell and it will ultimately lead to gangrene and amputation of those feet. Now, it's relatively easy to treat if you catch it before the final stages. The only problem with that while the treatment is easy, it's also extremely painful. It's extremely painful when feeling is returning to your feet. And so I was able to treat this extremely easy just by, uh, you know, a, a, a quick prescription and making sure that my feet were, were aired out and dry and warm. But it was painful. It was painful. And that's what Paul has in mind here when he's talking about old, useless, dirty clothes. It's the image that Paul is bringing to mind when he tells the church to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Just like useless, rotten, diseased clothes, put off the old self. Clothe yourself with fresh, new, clean, pure clothes as a part of your new self in Christ. It is this new self that is continually being renewed into the image of Christ, continuing to set its mind upon him, continuing to become more and more like him. In other words, we continue to become more and more like Christ as we continue to dwell upon him, like we talked about last week. So we continue to set our thoughts upon him, our hearts upon him. And as we put to death a sinful nature. That's the main, the main motivation Paul gives here for putting to death the old self. And it's just this focus on who we are in Christ. But here in verse 11... He mentions one final motivation. It's not just our union with Christ. It's also our union with others. 
Here in verse 11, Paul reminds us that rather than being filled with anger toward others and deceiving others, we now exist in perfect unity, whether we realize it or not, with other Christians who are as diverse as the languages are under heaven. And so Paul says there is no Jew or Greek Ethnic distinctions, while there can be something we are proud of, are ultimately secondary to our identity in Christ. There is neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. No matter your religious past, there's equality before God in Christ. There is no barbarian, Scythian. The, the Greeks, they had this focus on non-Greeks, non-Jewish people, and they called, they called them all barbarians. They saw them as barely better than animals. And the Scythians, they were, they were these people that lived in southern Ukraine, and they were especially barbaric. What Paul is saying here is that your cultural status, your cultural dignity doesn't make any difference to Christ. There's no slave nor free. Other places in Paul's writing, he urges slaves to earn their freedom if they are able to do so. But even if they're not, if they remain a slave, it doesn't affect their status before God. Your economic status does nothing to affect your status before God. In any and every life situation, Christ is in us. If we are united with Christ, then Christ is in us. around. He's in each of us as well, if we are found in Christ. And so we are not just united with Christ, but we are also united with one another. So put to death the desires and the reactions of the old heart. Put to death the old, to make room for the new. Next week, we're going to talk about what the new looks like, how we are called to live as Christians, not just the negative, but also the positive. But never forget who you are. Always remember your motivation for holy living. It is your union with Christ. It's not to earn God's approval, but as a part of who you already are. So live into that reality more and more each day by putting to death the desires of the old heart and the responses of the old heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the extremely practical words here of, of Colossians. And but just because they are easy to understand doesn't mean that they are easy to live out. And so, Father, we do ask that you would be gracious to us, that you would help us, that you would strengthen us in the battle against the old heart, that we would rely on our union with you, our connection with you, and that from that place we would see great motivation and response to live in a way that honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. 
Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.